Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 31 of the Yacking Podcast. And this is where we talk about life, business, and more, and we bring you tips and ideas for the changing world we find ourselves in today. As always, we bring you a range of interesting guests, and today's one is going to be delving into legal things, but we've got to be very sure up front that we're not presenting legal advice. We're presenting opinions and a bit of history on the law and a few other things. So no legal advice. If you have a serious legal problem, consult your lawyer or somebody. It's now my pleasure to welcome my co-host, the beauty part of Beauty and the Beast, to say hello to Kathleen down there in Kitchener. Welcome, Kathleen. Well, thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. And uh, hello, everyone, and welcome. We so appreciate you tuning in to our shows and always appreciate your comments. And as per usual, we do have another interesting guest to share with you today. His name is Barrett Baudouin. He is a licensed paralegal. And today we're going to do a deep dive into what is a paralegal. So welcome, Barrett. How are you? I'm great. How are you two doing? Excellent. Good, thank, thank you. you. Good. So, so Barrett, let's start with perhaps the most obvious question. Exactly what is a paralegal? So paralegals have actually been around ever since lawyers have been around. Uh, the term has been interchangeably used for law clerks okay. throughout history. So the profession's actually as old as the legal profession itself. Uh, however, in Ontario, paralegals have a special status on, by which that they're also licensed to provide legal services in the province of Ontario. And, and is, there, is, is this, this is new now for Ontario to this licensing? Yes. So um, all lawyers are licensed by the Law Society, and that has been the regime ever since way back in the 1800s. Um, paralegals since about 2008. What was happening at the time was that there was a whole bunch of unlicensed agents going into court and representing people because there was a phrase in some pieces of legislation that called for an agent, not a lawyer specifically, but an agent. Of course, that's a fairly ambiguous term. So, you know, I could say, hey, you know what, Kathleen's my agent, so she's going to go to traffic court and fight my speeding ticket. Unfortunately, there were issues with that, right? Um, not only in the quality of representation, but also in terms of accountability. Somebody takes $1,000 from you, and then they disappear. <laughs> so who do you go to to complain, right? And so what happened was the Law Society, at a certain point, they did this huge assessment and they decided to step in and license these paralegal agents um, in order to have them under their care and control set competent standards and ensure that they were following the code of ethics and all that great stuff. Can you uh, explain the scope of what a paralegal, the, the scope of practice for a paralegal? Yeah. Uh, so it is a restricted scope. It's not the same as a lawyer. When a lawyer obtains a license to practice law, uh, they sort of have free reign. There are some special license restrictions under certain lawyer license, but that generally deals with uh, 
it doesn't necessarily restrict what they're allowed to do. It kind of more restricts where. Whereas for paralegals, because we're only licensed in Ontario right now, they've given us kind of um, a very precise scope. And what that means is that we have more or less free reign in the Ontario Court of Justice. And that often deals with uh, issues like your provincial offenses matters. Uh, most commonly people think of Highway Traffic Act issues, but it also incorporates bylaw problems. Uh, anything where the state, as it is, is initiating a prosecution against a defendant. Uh, we can also do appeals in the Ontario Court of Justice. Normally, when a case is brought before the Ontario Court of Justice, it's heard by a Justice of the Peace. But you also have the option to have an appeal in the Ontario Court of Justice with a judge. Okay. Now, we can also perform services for clients in Superior Court, but a very limited section of the Superior Court, which is Small Claims Court. Any of the other areas of Superior Court, like the Divisional Court or the Trial Division of the Civil Superior Court, we're not allowed to practice there because we don't have standing in those courts. Uh, we could also perform some work in uh, statutory accident benefits, which so long as the case doesn't involve a catastrophic, what's termed in the legislation as a catastrophic impairment, uh, we can handle those cases as well. Uh, there's a good amount of uh, WSIB claims. Mm -hmm. More or less, we're also allowed to perform work for clients in front of any provincial and federal tribunal. So those are things like your landlord-tenant board, uh, social benefits tribunal. There's a whole myriad of them. Ontario has some 300 of them. Uh, wow. Paralegals won't be able to tell you the names of all of them, really. The federal tribunals, they do have some restrictions. They require extra credentials. Like uh, an example of that would be the Immigration Board uh, mm -hmm. for Canada. They require special certification in order for you to practice in that area. And that's more or less what the scope is defined to. However, uh, it is an expanding scope. And more recently, there has actually been a standing committee as part of the ventures of the Law Society who have been looking at opening up certain areas of family law for paralegals as well. So it's a growing area. I'm going to jump in quick. Um, that I guess there's a lot of work that doesn't involve appearing in court. And I'm thinking of... Uh, business contracts, uh, wills, um, property sales. I guess there's a lot of that you can do as well. Uh, no. So it depends mostly on where that conflict is going to end up. Uh, if it's going to end up in a court that's outside of the scope of practice, uh, okay. then okay. we can't participate in that because it's not a proceeding that we're authorized to handle. So there are certain areas of law where by default, if they go through some kind of a legal proceeding, uh, they're going to be out of scope anyway because they're assigned to go to the superior court or something like that. An example of that would be real estate transactions right. because the amount of money is outside of the small claims okay. monetary okay. jurisdiction. They would go right to the uh, civil division of the superior court. One thing I forgot to mention too is that uh, 
I forgot to mention it because I don't practice in this area. Uh, but we can also actually represent defendants in summary conviction offenses in criminal court as well because they proceed through the Ontario Court of Justice and some hybrid offenses after the Crown has made the selection. So we uh, don't get calls in the middle of the night from people <laughs> <laughs> because we can't give them advice at that point. We don't know exactly what the charge is. However, after uh, they have come out, we could potentially take some of those cases so long as they are summary conviction or have elected to be summary conviction by the Crown. Okay. Uh, just explain summary conviction a little better. Um, I'm not quite sure what that in covers. Yeah. So in the scheme of criminal law in Canada, there are three types of offenses. You have your summary conviction offenses, which are generally considered to be less serious offenses. Um, usually the jail time for those since about June of last year can be up to two months, two years, sorry, two years, two years in prison, uh, two years less a day, technically speaking, and a $5,000 fine. The other type of offense that you have is an indictable offense, and those are your big nasty ones, you know, uh, murder, kidnapping, all that really high profile, really nasty, nasty stuff, right? Sure. Uh, now, the third type is a hybrid offense. And so the uh, Criminal Code in Canada has set out some offenses where the Crown can make the decision to proceed either by way of the summary conviction or the indictable. Okay, okay, I'm with you. So an, an example of a summary conviction could be being drunk in public, for instance, could it? Is, is that the sort of level we're talking about? Uh, don't quote me on it, but I think, yeah, like m mischief, yeah, okay. um, you know, things like that, uh, assault, um, theft under 5,000, uh, in some cases, assault can go into the indictable too, sure, sure, it's sure. hybrid, but. Okay. And then while I've got you a quick, quick one, this probably comes into commercial law, but, um, somebody that is disputing a debt, for instance, um, can you act on their behalf there if it's under thirty five thousand or is that need does that need a a lawyer to do that if it's under thirty five thousand dollars yes okay that's a good one because i I would guess there's a lot of people would would like to know that answer that they could come to someone like yourself for a disputed debt rather than go to the expense of a lawyer interesting thank you for that Kathleen you that's got actually the bulk of what a lot of uh court agents do in small claims is that type of thing, uh, unpaid invoices, uh, unfortunately, debts between friends and family that are for small <laughs> amounts. Normally, though, if you're talking about civil litigation, it's unfortunately really not worth going to court unless it's over about three or $4,000 because you end up spending that much money defending or bringing it to the courts anyway. Right. Okay. I know Kathleen wanted to ask you something else. Well, I was just wondering, Barrett, let's, you know, uh, law firms often will have paralegals or law clerks working for them as well. Uh, take us through a little bit of your training and, and the, the level of expertise that you all have, because the term paralegal almost, you know, to my, to my way of thinking, you guys are like, lawyers without 
being called a lawyer. Now that's my personal opinion, uh, but perhaps you can elaborate a little bit more on that because you do have a lot of, of training to be a paralegal. Yeah, so when the Law Society came up with this licensing regime, one of their primary concerns was to standardize the training. So all of the provinces, all of the uh, college programs in the province of Ontario, their curriculum actually gets approved by the Law Society. So um, it has, in order to use those credentials to go and write your licensing exam, you need to have the credentials provided by an accredited paralegal program. Now, the length of time for those programs can vary depending on the college. Um, I myself was a participant of the one-year accelerated delivery program, but the requisite for that was that I had to, it was a postgraduate certificate, so I had to have already completed college or university to get into that program. Uh, so you do however many years of school. Um, all the, as I mentioned, the curriculum is completely laid out by the law society approved by the law society and then what you do is you entering the licensing process at uh, the LSO and you write a seven hour exam wow. um, yeah it's it takes a good chunk of time uh, but it's similar again in nature to the um, lawyer licensing process as well right it's you could argue that it's shorter um, because for lawyers, you need to do the four years of law school and, you know, have a prior undergrad before that. And, but it's a similar model, you could say. Um, also, as part of the, um, as part of the credentials in the college program, you are required to do a placement with a law firm. <laughs> Okay. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. I'm going to make an observation and, and, and ask Barrett to comment on it. And um, it's not contentious. As you can hear from my accent, I'm a relatively new Canadian. I've only been here 17 years, which is quite a long time. But at my age, you don't lose your accent. So I grew up in, in um, a system under British rule in Rhodesia, as it was called, and then for 14 years in South Africa. Both countries practiced a version of Roman Dutch law, which I think is perhaps different to Canada. And one of the one of the basic concepts of the law there was that you could not use the legal system uh, to protect you from the consequences of an illegal act. And that sounded pretty simple and straightforward to me. So if you were con if you were injured, for instance, in the process of conducting an illegal act, you could not claim, use the law to protect you. So the prime example was someone breaks into somebody else's house or warehouse, injures themselves, and um, then turns around and tries to sue the owner of that property for damages. Now, that was just a total no-no there. Uh, but it, it appears that here that can be done, and certainly in other parts of the world that that's possible. Is that right? Well, uh, again, I'm not an expert on international law, but... Uh, what I can say to that is that Canada, in terms of the rest of the world, is kind of unique in the sense that we've inherited British common law. Mm -hmm. okay. So, and actually, as uh, recently as um, 
sometime in the 80s, I believe, uh, we were still taking cases that were heard at, that were eligible for an appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada over to the House of Lords in Britain for them to have a final <laughs> determination when I believe it was Trudeau, when he repatriated the Constitution, we said, no, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're right. our own country. Supreme Court is now the highest level of court in Canada and binding on all lower courts. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so to what's interesting about that is that a lot of countries actually don't follow the British common law system. And even some of the colonies have gone back to civil law systems. So the difference there is that um, in civil law, there's usually a code. And okay. you can actually look to Quebec for an example of this. Uh, Quebec's what we call a bi-jural province. So they have carried French law into because of their heritage into their okay. legal system. So the difference between a civil code is that basically all the rules are written down. And there's a bit of interpretation in those rules, but you always go back to the rule. British common law system is a little different. And where that law derives from is what judges have said in the past. Okay, precedent, right. Right. And the idea there was that if we make a ruling in one case, we have to carry that ruling consistently throughout history. So to speak to... Um, that situation that you said about where, you know, somebody's committing an illegal act and, you know, they hurt themselves and then they go and sue the property owner or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of things kind of wrapped up in that, like occupiers, liabilities and trespassing and all these mm -hmm. steps that we have. But generally speaking, um, there is the ability to possibly go after the person. The likelihood of success, though, is fairly minimal. The idea in civil litigation is that you're coming to hand, you're coming to court with clean hands, right? right? Yes. So if you go and, you know, steal somebody's car, and then you crash that car, and find out later that, you uh, it, the reason the car crashed was because it had defective brakes. We can't go and sue. Okay. The, stole the car from, right? They're going to kind of look at you like say, okay, well, you know, you shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have taken the vehicle. You were illegally in possession of the vehicle. You didn't know the history behind the vehicle. Right. So kind of your fault. So I guess to say that, you know, there may be a slight opening for nominal damages, but I don't think it's the system where, you know, if you have somebody breaking into your house and they and they fall down the stairs and end up a quadriplegic that, you know, they can go and sue you for your house in court because right. it wouldn't be fair, right? Okay. Okay. No, thanks for that. I just wondered. Yeah. Okay. Kathleen, back to you. There's definite advantages to calling on a paralegal. Now, let, let me backtrack for a moment and I'm going to also make an observation and correct me if I'm wrong. But when you're dealing with a law firm, a lot of, of the, the, the processes that, are, that occur within that law firm um, get passed to different people and paralegals being one of them. And that's probably just a fact, right? So if a, if, if a client goes to a law firm, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's being done regarding their case is being handled by that lawyer. It's being passed to some members of their team and oftentimes 
it'll be a paralegal. Would you agree with that, Barrett? Yeah, so law firms have the advantage, uh, larger law firms have the advantage of creating this structure. And uh, it would be fair. I mean, I don't work in all the law firms, so I can't speak to all of them, obviously. But generally, yes, uh, the lawyer's attention in those law firms will be directed towards matters that require that level of education, experience, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're talking about uh, a person that maybe is thinking of representing themselves, um, what would you say to somebody like that? What did they, I mean, I would see a huge advantage to having a paralegal with me that's, that knows the law, but maybe you can touch on that. Okay. <laughs> so you have the right to represent yourself in court. That's absolute. And nobody will ever tell you that you can't do that. The real question there is, is it a good idea? Mm -hmm. And I find that when it comes to self-represented people in court, um, maybe they have some access to research tools. You know, maybe they can go out and read some textbooks on their matter. The problem is, is that you don't learn any of the procedural aspects of it. So unless, if you're basically relying, well, I, I like to work in hypotheticals because it usually gets the point across a, a bit better. So I'll give you an example, right? You have a person that uh, comes in and, you know, say they're charged with uh, speeding, okay? And they say, oh, well, I'm just going to go to court and fight the speeding ticket because I'm not going to pay somebody, you know, whatever, hundreds or a thousand dollars or whatever to go and represent it for me. It's a $200 speeding ticket, but I'm going to fight it. Right. And then, you know, they say, Oh, okay. They show up. Um, well, you don't know when you get that speeding ticket, it is written on the back, but let's say they just assume that there's a court date. Well, you actually have to file a notice of intention to appear within 15 days of the point that you're issued. Now that's written on the ticket. So you'll get that far, right? All right. That's great. You get your court date. And then you show up there and the prosecutor says, okay, bing, bang, boom. Here's what you're charged with. Uh, gets read. And then you're standing there and you say, okay, well, this is my story and this is what happened and all this other kind of stuff. Well, thing is, is that when you're acting as your own representative, you can't testify and introduce evidence. You're there to present evidence. And there's a fine distinction there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they do have the opportunity and the courts have been really forgiving and flexible because they obviously don't want to appear unjust or biased. So when self-represented people kind of stumble over the procedural aspects, they, um, they're, they're usually quite forgiving of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a good example of this comes to mind and I was in court one day and I saw two people with uh, the holding the cell phone tickets. One person got off and one person got convicted for totally different reasons. The first person didn't understand the procedure at all. There you go in, you make an opening argument 
and then the Crown does direct, you have an opportunity to cross and then they can re-examine if they want. And then you go in, you do your direct, they get, the Crown gets to cross and then you can do, and then you go to a closing. Well, he didn't know the procedure and so he missed the opportunity to present any evidence. And then when the judge turned to him and said to the closing, uh, he started going on about his story, about what happened. And the judge said, no, we're past that. So he totally missed his opportunity to bring it forward any defense at all. Now, it was probably going to shock you, but he was the one that got off with it. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. The judge, the justice of the peace told everyone to leave the courtroom and went over the officer's testimony very, very carefully. And it came down to one single word that the officer said in their testimony that created a reasonable doubt. And there's a piece of case law, RVWD, that basically creates these three criteria when you're testing witness testimony. And because the officer wasn't sure-footed in what they said, they I believe they said something that it appears it appeared to be a cell phone, not that it was a cell phone. Aha, uh -huh. okay. That's what actually got that person off on the case without... Now, that's luck. That's pure, sheer luck. No other way to put it. The other person was in court at the same time. They happened to see this. They got up on the stand and basically talked themselves right into a conviction. <laughs> so when it comes to... And it's a lot of the procedural aspects. So to kind of wrap it back to your question... Um, the, I would not recommend it, although it's your right, definitely hire somebody who knows and understands not just the law, but the procedural aspects of it as well. And you'll be much better off, even if they can't get you off of the charge completely, maybe the case is there. Maybe the state has done its job. You know, if you're still not going to inadvertently prejudice yourself. Sure. That way. That's important. Yeah. We haven't got an awful lot of time left. So, um, Kathleen, have you got any more quick ones for Barrett? And then we'll get him to give us some contact details. But over to you. Are there specific types of cases that, um, that you personally uh, would, would want to handle? What are the types of cases that you, you, know, you, you have a wide scope, but... Is there anything that you would like to see yourself as specializing or your clients to see you as specializing in? Uh, so, uh, yes, I do have an ask. Uh, I am looking for provincial offenses matters. That includes highway traffic matters, bylaw issues, any of that kind of stuff. I'm really looking to build a practice on that. I have a few on the go right now. Uh, and that's where I did a lot of my training and I read up a lot on that kind of thing. So that's kind of the area that I'm focusing on. Uh, the other kind of subspecialty you would say is uh, small claims. Most of the reason is, is because I like to be in court and both of those avenues, they put you in court more frequently than the other types. And I'm going to ask you a quick subsidiary question to that. Your license to practice anywhere in Ontario, um, are you, can you travel to any, any areas where someone might need you? 
Uh, I could with a special arrangement. Say, for example, there was somebody up in campus casing and they couldn't uh, get a hold of anyone or something like that. I'd be happy to provide. I do do at least a free half hour of consultations. Uh, and I don't turn away calls or anything like that. Uh, the other useful thing is the Law Society actually has a referral service. So you can contact a legal help. Uh, through the Law Society, and they'll be able to connect you with somebody who's closer to your area. But yeah, if there was a specific case where someone came to me, uh, I'm actually handling one for someone in Ottawa right now. Uh, but that's because the offense happened here, so sure. allegedly. Right. Okay. So how do people get hold of you, Barrett? Uh, my phone is the best way to reach me, 647 525 six eight two nine i can also be reached by email that's mm -hmm. bravo alpha romeo romeo echo tango tango period bravo echo alpha uniform delta ohio india november at gmail.com great we will let everyone know that and that's great thank you very much for that uh, we're going to get you back because there's a whole lot of interesting questions I have lined up about the current situation we find ourselves in, but that's for another time. So I'm going to go back to Kathleen to close our show for today. Over to you, Kathleen. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. As um, previously mentioned, we always appreciate you tuning into our shows and providing your comments. And uh, thank you to Barrett for joining us today. And uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks, Pat. Goodbye.